Welcome everyone to this episode of the Naked Guru Experience. As ever, it always helps us if you like and subscribe to our content. And a big thank you to our sponsors, the Psychedelic Society. Today's guest is Martin Ball. Martin is author of numerous books, both fiction and nonfiction, on the nature of entheogenic experience and non-dual realization and liberation. He is the host of the Entheogenic Evolution podcast, co-founder and organizer of the annual Exploring Psychedelics Conference, and is also a visionary artist and musician. He is considered one of the world's leading authorities on 5-MeO-DMT and the application of psychedelic medicines for the purpose of non-dual realization and liberation. His PhD is in the field of religious studies, which he teaches as an adjunct professor in, the Southern, in Southern Oregon. His latest book, Entheogenic Liberation, will be the topic of discussion for today. Welcome, Martin, and thanks for agreeing to the discussion. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's nice to be on another Naked show. I've been on um, a show called The Naked Truth, I think, a couple times now, and now we've got The Naked Guru, so uh, yeah, let's get naked. Everyone's let's expose naked. it. Let's stay in yeah. <laughs> So um, I've been following your work and uh, I've been watching through your YouTube stuff and you are a very interesting individual, my friend. Mm. Um, and we, I feel like we've got a lot to cover here. So my first question to you, um, just for anybody that's not familiar with the territory uh, and just to kind of set the stage, when we talk about 5-MeO-DMT, what are we talking about and what is it in comparison to the more uh, popularly known more famously known dmt okay great place to start well first of all it's 5-methoxydimethyltryptamine so it's a tryptamine molecule um, what's interesting about tryptamines is that these are generally neurotransmitters within mammals um, so for example i always like to point out that like serotonin which is the primary neurotransmitter that we use with everyday normal perception interaction that's a tryptamine melatonin um, which is the neurotransmitter which signals our body that it's time to sleep and go to dreamland and um, rest that also is a tryptamine and then we have something like 5-methoxydimethyltryptamine which is a tryptamine um, with a little bit a methoxy group added to the five oxygen position on it, you know, just to get kind of technical about it. Um, but it's a tryptamine and it falls into the class of what is considered to be a psychedelic or hallucinogen. And like the more well-known DMT or dimethyltryptamine, um, it is produced inside all mammals. So you and I, right now, we both have very, very small amounts of both DMT and 5-MeO-DMT inside our bodies. It's naturally produced, so it's called an endogenous psychedelic tryptamine. Endogenous meaning naturally produced within the body. And this is true, actually, for all mammals. Every single mammal on the planet has small amounts of both DMT and 5-MeO-DMT inside it. Um, so as a psychedelic tryptamine, that within nature, um, both DMT and 5-MeO-DMT are actually relatively common, meaning that there are various trees and plants and grasses that produce both DMT and 5-MeO-DMT, generally in very, very small amounts. That There aren't any plants out there that have a high enough concentration of DMT or 5-MeO-DMT that you could just go like pick the leaves or flowers and smoke it and get some kind of effect from it. Like say, for example, like 
what you can do with cannabis, right? Mm. That there's enough THC in cannabis that you can activate your endocannabinoid system by smoking some cannabis flowers. But there are no plants that produce enough DMT or 5-MeO to, to do that. Um, but also the basic DMT molecule um, with a slight alteration that uh, would be psilocin and psilocybin, which are the active... Uh, tryptamine molecules that are present in quote unquote magic mushrooms. Mm. Um, and that, so that is kind of considered to be an edible form of DMT. And both with DMT and 5-MeO DMT, we actually uh, produce enzymes in our stomachs that break down these molecules. Um, and this, you know, I've speculated that this might be from an an evolutionary perspective to be somewhat of an advantage given that humans have been meat eaters. And if we didn't have enzymes that broke down DMT and 5-MeO that, you know, we might potentially trip when we're eating <laughs> an animal because they contain, you know, mammals contain DMT and 5-MeO in them. Mm. Um, but anyway, just to, to make then a few psychedelic uh, uh, phenomenological comparisons. So with the psilocin and psilocybin that you have in magic mushrooms as a form of edible DMT, that you can eat mushrooms and within 15 minutes to an hour, you start to feel the effects and you get, you know, depending on the level that you've eaten, you start to get psychedelic visuals of fractals, geometry, things start to breathe, colors are more interesting. Um, and then, if, you know, at higher levels, when you close your eyes, there's just infinite universes of stuff going on behind your closed eyes. And psilocybin mushrooms, as, as that edible DMT, lasts for about four to five or maybe six hours at the most. Um, then when it comes to DMT, uh, this is one of the traditional ingredients of ayahuasca, which is this psychedelic tea that is brewed by indigenous cultures in South America. And there, what they do is they um, take leaves that contain uh, DMT in it, for example, from the psychotree of Veritas plant, and mix that with the ayahuasca vine, which contains the monoamine oxidase inhibitor of harmaline, and that makes it so that the enzymes in your stomach that break down the DMT, it overrides them so that you can then drink the tea and experience the effects of the DMT. And there, it's very similar to eating magic mushrooms where anywhere within 15 minutes to an hour or so is sort of the come on period when you start to receive psychedelic visuals. And then depending on how the brew was made, it can last anywhere from an hour and a half to you know four, five, six hours, depending on how it was done. Um, many people in the West are more familiar with, say, smoked or vaporized DMT. And this can be um, a molecule that's made in a lab or also extracted from various plants that contain DMT and then concentrated into a crystalline form. And when smoked, DMT um, kind of what's considered to be a, a full release or a full launch dose would be 50 to 100 milligrams of DMT. And there, depending on how quickly you're able to smoke it, you might be able to get it in one hit or two to three hits. Um, then things get very, very psychedelic very, very quickly, just within a number of seconds. And it is just incredibly hyper-visual. It's a, it's a very, very visual psychedelic experience where 
your eyes can be open and there's just infinite geometry and fractals everywhere. Eyes closed, again, just entire universes might be present behind your closed eyes. Um, everything in reality can become like highly pixelated and fractaled. Um, and that experience only lasts between five and 15 minutes. So you kind of go from zero to this, whoa, within a number of seconds and peaks within about five minutes. And then you come back down to baseline and then you're done tripping. Um, DMT was really made popular by people like Terrence McKenna and also Rick Strassman in his book, DMT, the spirit molecule. And, uh, so people are, are generally at least vaguely familiar with DMT. It's been very popular for a long time, but then we have five methoxy dimethyltryptamine, 5-MeO-DMT. And for uh, going back into traditional cultures, this is something that was used as a snuff in um, Central American and South American indigenous cultures where they would take the seeds of, um, they're called yopo seeds, and they come from a particular kind of tree that has 5-MeO-DMT in the seeds, and they would roast them and crush them and mix them with some other materials to make it more active. And then you would you would either blow it up somebody's nose or someone would snort it, you know, with like a little tube. And that was kind of the traditional use of 5-MeO-DMT. And within uh, Western cultures, it was something of an underground secret in starting in the mid-1960s or so, where um, certain sort of elect or elite groups of people in the psychedelic world were familiar with 5-MeO, but it wasn't really known at a popular level. And some of this was intentional, that some of the people who were involved with 5-MeO-DMT thought that it was so profound and so special that they didn't want the general public to know about it because they didn't want it to get made illegal, as it happened with, say, DMT back in 1975, mm -hmm. um, I believe. But um, with 5-MeO-DMT, what you have is a really unique tryptamine molecule in that it, more so than any other psychedelic compound, holds the potential to completely override and dissolve the human ego within a number of seconds. And this is a very, very different than DMT kind of experience. So with, with DMT, for example, because it's very highly visual, it retains a sense of duality about it, subject-object duality. There is the one who is seeing and that which is seen. So there's subject and object that's present there. And um, DM, smoking DMT, you might, in a sense, forget who you are or where you are, but it doesn't dissolve the ego. In most, in 99.99% of all DMT trips, the ego is not dissolved. So there's still some sense of self that remains. It might be a very altered self, a very tripping self, but there's still a sense of self that remains and there's still subject-object duality. And it's really common for people to report like aliens and entities and deities and spirits and things like that on their DMT trips. 5-MeO-DMT is very different, again, in that it's far more powerful than DMT it tends not to be very visual at all, which is interesting because when you think of psychedelics, many people think of like the visual qualities of psychedelics, fractals and geometry, colors. 
Um, at the visual level, 5-MeO-DMT produces the experience of kind of like a pure white or golden light that is refracted into pure rainbows through an infinite um, crystal fractalin matrix um, or crystalline fractal matrix, excuse me. Um, so it's a very pure kind of white or golden light with sort of rainbow on the edges. And it can be very fractal, but the, the um, visual quality is not the predominant quality. The predominant quality is this feeling when, when the ego completely dissolves and lets go, the ego perceives it as it's dying. So within seconds of smoking 5-MeO-DMT or vaporizing it, the ego thinks, oh my God, I'm dying. And if the ego can relax and trust that and say, okay, let's go ahead and die, then it's possible for someone to move into what is called a non-dual experience. And here, there is no subject-object division. There's no more sense of ego self there. There's just a pure sense of infinite being, infinite awareness, infinite consciousness, infinite presence. And there's no separation. It's all perceived and experienced as one unitary thing. And this is where 5-MeO is very different and very unique, that most psychedelics, the majority of the time, they produce a dualistic psychedelic experience. 5-MeO gives people access to a non-dual experience. And, and what's really significant about that is that anybody who has a non-dual experience, or we could call it a unitary experience, or a mystical experience, anyone who has this kind of experience comes back from it with the sense that that was the most true thing they ever could have experienced or perceived. And so it reveals itself as being the fundamental nature of reality. And then all other dualistic experiences are seen in light of that perspective. So it's very, very transformative for people to go all the way into, oh my God, it's all God or it's all one. And that's also perceived as the self, not the egoic self, but the infinite nature of the self. And that puts everything else into perspective. So it's a, a very, very unique molecule. Um, I like to call it the God molecule. I like to call it the crown jewel of entheogens, <laughs> that it's really, it's beyond any other kind of psychedelic experience. And um, it also tends to be beyond most states of meditative experience or realizations that most people can reach. So it's very, 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 very profound. So that was kind of a long answer um, to, uh, short, yeah, to the short question. Now, uh, you on, on your channel, uh, you have available for people to actually watch you engaging in these uh, five MEO uh, experiences. Yes. Uh, one of one of them, you're kind of hooked up to um, a brain monitor that's looking at the gamma the gamma waves in the brain. Yeah, yeah. that was like really cool that you did that. Um, and so, one thing I noticed um, during these experiences that you're having. You're doing a lot of body movements, particular yes. body movements. They are, I know you talk about symmetry a lot and they're very symmetrical. And I, I just wanted, one can watch it from the outside and say, okay, yeah, I, I've, I've had similar experiences, but what's going on inside? What is this symmetry? And then also, and just to add to that, the clicking sound. Sometimes you will make yeah, yeah, yeah. clicking sound. And I, I wanted to know what's going on in the mind at, at this point or what's going on in the experience. Okay. Um, this will take a little bit to really sure. answer right. this question. So 
what happens when people take 5-MeO-DMT? First of all, is we could describe it as an experience of infinite levels of energy. So it's extremely energetically powerful. I mean, some people like to call it like, um, I, I was first introduced to it with uh, the phrase of it's a rocket ship straight into the heart of God, or it's a nuclear explosion and you're the center of the explosion. <laughs> and that's the level of energy that we're talking about, that it's extremely, extremely powerful where you feel just this energy coursing through every molecule and atom of your being. It's just, it pours through you. It's, it's just an infinite. And even in saying that, like, People can think like, oh, okay, I guess I have an idea of what infinite is. And, and you know, anybody who's taken 5-MeO DMT can tell you, you have no idea what infinite is. Whatever idea you have that infinite is, that's an idea. That's a concept that re exists within the realm of duality. This is beyond that. So it, it's a linguistic descriptor we can use, but you can't really understand it until you have the experience. But anyway, there's just this infinite energy that's coursing through you. And the ego itself is made up of energetic patterns of thought, behavior, body gestures, movements, articulations, um, and even um, patterns of belief, patterns of expression. All of these things are what make the ego. So we can think of the ego as being like a character that this universal consciousness is performing through different vehicles of different bodies of different individuals. And each character has its own distinguishing features. It's particular ways of expressing particular ways of embodying itself and thinking and being. So when this infinite energy hits, that's where the potential comes that since the ego is just made out of limited patterns of energy, this infinite energy can override these energetic structures of the ego and then reveal the universal consciousness that exists underneath and is expressed through the ego. Now, something that I learned very early on in working with 5-MeO-DMT is that egoic energetic patterns tend to express themselves through the body with asymmetries. Most people are either right or left-handed. For example, right? You're using one hand more than the other. Mm. More, most people gesticulate more on one side than the other. When we think about things, we put them into categories of, I like it, I don't like it. I believe this, I don't believe that. This is good, this is bad. So we're constantly creating these dichotomies through the ego, and it creates these asymmetries. But when people go all the way into a non-dual experience with 5-MeO, as this infinite energy is rushing through their body, and the ego be becomes overridden, what happens is people's bodies open up with this natural symmetry shows up. There's always a perfect balance between the left and right sides of the body when they are embodying the energy. Now, some people, when they take 5-MeO, their ego just kind of checks out at the conscious level. And so they might be lying there and not moving, but still having a non-dual experience. But for me, by my measurement, that's a lesser order experience than what I call a full energetic embodiment of the energy. So when this occurs, it's not like th this energy is not passive. 
this energy is extraordinarily active, that energy is always moving, energy is always transforming. And at the deepest level, we are beings of energy. That is what we are. So when the, the body opens up with this nice bilateral symmetry where the left and right sides always mirror each other, and what many people do but they're not aware of that they're doing because their ego isn't there and they're, they don't know what's physically happening with their body is that these spontaneous movements show up where there's this fluid kind of rolling nature to the movements and the left and right sides are always mirroring each other and like the hands might come together and meet in the middle but hands never cross this center line. And there's never like one hand is up and one hand is down. And that's actually one of the ways you can tell when someone egos comes back online, that they're moving in these bilateral symmetrical movements and it's nice and fluid. And all of a sudden there's some kind of change and there's an asymmetry that appears. And that's the instant that you can say, okay, your ego just came back online. And now you're aware of the energy, you're aware that you're moving and now you're trying to do something with it. Whereas a second ago, you were simply embodying the authentic nature of the energy that you were feeling. So from an experiential perspective, if, you know, when you can become aware of it, keep in mind, most people are not aware of their bodies when this is going on, but it, it, there's a still point in the center of your heart that does not move. And then all this energy radiates out from that center point. And then the arms and legs are like these conduits of energy. It's kind of like if you have a high pressure hose and suddenly you turn it on and a bunch of water is going through that high pressure hose, that hose will start to whip around, right? Mm. The same thing is happening to the limbs of the body where all of this is moving. Now, what I'm able to do and what I you know, strive to share and teach with others is to learn how to be completely centered in the energy so that it opens up and your ego dissolves, but your awareness stays present and you also embody, you don't just experience the five MEO energy, but you embody it so that there's no distinction between your body, yourself, what you are feeling, what you are experiencing and what you are expressing. It all becomes one thing. And that is the fullest expression of our being as a human that is the embodiment of this infinite God energy, God consciousness. So, for example, in those videos that you're talking about, there's, there's two different videos. One is, I think it, I named it like full embodiment of non-dual energy on 5-MeO-DMT, something like that. Yeah. And in that one, what I'm doing is just smoking 5-MeO-DMT and I'm demonstrating how the energy moves and expresses while in a non-dual state of consciousness. So it's this completely unitary state where then, see, it's not just, it's not like meditation where you're sitting and you're just being there and breathing. That here, there's this experience of all this energy. So it's a matter of how do you embody it authentically? So I'm showing through these movements what it looks like and all of it's spontaneous so that's not like in that video it's not like i'm thinking okay well now i want to show people this or do this part not and yeah there's there's no plan to it it's just the spontaneous authentic expression of the energy in the moment and that's what it looks like and i wanted to show people this because there's lots of videos online of people 
smoking 5-MeO-DMT. And what I tell people is like, look, watch these videos and that you will see during certain portions of it, people will be doing these bilateral symmetrical movements and then you'll see them break the movements. And so you can see when their ego is present, you can mm. see when their ego is gone. You can see when their ego thinks it's doing something with the energy, or you can see when their ego thinks it's resisting the energy or fighting with it or surrendering to it. So it's, it's simply a demonstration of this is what it actually looks like when you completely fully surrender and allow yourself to embody it and be the energy, not just perceive it, not just experience it, but actually fully be it. Now, the sounds. Um, Vocalization is one of the ways that we express our energy. It's one of the ways that we take our energy that's inside of us and exteriorize it. So it's a primary method through which energy is expressed. For example, someone's happy, they laugh. Someone's sad, they cry. Someone's afraid or elated, they scream. Um, so in the video, I'm making all different kinds of sounds and this is just how the energy can then be expressed at the vocal level, but not within any kind of linguistic structure. Because linguistic structure is something that is created for duality. Mm. It's for this subject to communicate to that <laughs> object yeah. right there. Mm. But this is, this is pure energetic expression and embodiment. And it can come out as purring, growling, clicking, whistling, toning, um, all different kinds of things. So, I mean, just to go through a few things right now, it'd be like, you know, it's just energy expressing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so sometimes when people have seen me do this or when they've done like medicine sessions with me, uh, they ask me like, well, why did you make that sound? And then this sound, why did you sound like a bear? And then you sounded like a bird and then you sounded like a wolf and then you sounded like an insect and then you sounded like an alien. And my answer is just, that was the ex authentic expression of that energy in that moment. It doesn't mean anything. And mm -hmm. then, you know, as a human being, we kind of have infinite potential. Now we're still bound by the physicality of the human form, but for example, a dog is pretty much always going to sound like a dog. A cat is always going to sound like a cat. Um, a cricket is always going to sound like a cricket. But a human being, we have this really articulate vocal system where we can actually embody and express almost any sound that can be made in nature, that we can do it with our own apparatus. And so as all this energy is moving through, it's just the articulation of it in the moment has no particular meaning. It's just the embodiment and expression of energy. And so with these two videos, that was the first one. It had been a couple years since I had had any 5-MeO DMT when I made that video. And so the idea was, well, we're gonna, do, be, gonna be doing a brain scan of me and you wanna be as still as possible for the brain scan. So the first video is me just really freely riding with the energy and expressing the energy because that's how I do it when I work with psychedelics is I'm not just passively sitting there. I'm embodying that energy that there, for me, there's no distinction between the trip that I'm having and the embodied experience that I'm having. It's one and the same thing that w one way of putting it is I am the medicine. 
I am the psychedelic. I am fully embodying it in that moment. It's not something that's happening to me. It's what I am. Mm -hmm. So that first one was just to embody and express all the energy as much as I could so that then the next one, I could be as still as possible. But even in that video, you can see that I'm not completely still, that I'll be still for a moment and be in that energy, but then the energy starts moving again. And that I, in my own process, I learned just don't resist it, trust it, allow it, don't resist it and stay centered, stay focused. And that's how you maintain full awareness in the ego, going out of the ego in the non-dual state and then re-emerging back into the ego that you stay centered and focused and you move all the way through and your, and your awareness never goes anywhere. Your ego comes and goes. Mm -hmm. your, your limited sense of self comes and goes, but your full awareness never goes anywhere if you learn how to be centered within the experience. Mm -hmm. So that, that's what all of that is kind of demonstrating. Beautiful. And now we discuss the materials of 5-MeO-DMT and we discuss somewhat the method and the experience. Now I'd like to touch on the revelation. So once we move into the non-dual state where we experience the, the oneness of all, some call that God, some call it the universal yeah. consciousness, yeah. and then we come back into this form, what, what can we then bring back? Your work really reminded me of a lot of what Sri Ramana Maharshi talks about. When he was asked, uh, how do we treat others? He says, there are no others. Uh, everybody is, is, is God, it's all, it's all one. And he also talked of an energy flowing through his body, which is yeah. very reminiscent of the energy you've just discussed. He said he, he, said he experienced it as a, a constant energy flowing through him. So when we come back from these non-dual non states, for those of us that take this seriously, um, and it's not just purely recreational. What can we gain from it? And, and what insights do we have from that? And how has it helped you? And, and how do you help others with it? Yeah, well, there's so many different ways to really answer that question. Um, I guess the first way that I'll answer it is that for me, the first time it happened, when I came back from that, and when my ego reemerged, my very first thought was, well, the first thought was, oh my God, God is real that, <laughs> that and and I'm not talking about the religious concept of God this is not God that sits up on a cloud in heaven and judges right or wrong and good and bad and sin and you know reward and punishment mm -hmm. it has nothing to do with that no. but in terms of oh my God there actually is a unitary universal consciousness that is made out of the infinite energy of pure unconditional love. And it is everyone and everything and is present in all moments, in all places, at all times. It's not an idea. It's not a belief. It's real. And I knew immediately this was the experience I had been looking for my entire life, but had no idea that this is what I had been looking for. But when it presented itself, it was just like, that's it. This is, this, this is it. And in that moment, I essentially lost any kind of existential questions I might've had about the nature of reality and nature of being. It was just gone because the answer was there. Everything is God all the time. And what it also did for me was really reveal that the whole concept of being spiritual trying to achieve kind of some kind of spiritual goal or being religious or following any kind of belief system was simply um, an activity that egos engage in. Because mm -hmm. the truth 
is that each and every one of us is God. We always have been. We always will be. Doesn't matter what you do or not do. You can't <laughs> change that. Yeah. Um, it also means that all spiritual figures are ultimately meaningless. Like Jesus can't save you because there's nothing to be saved from. And if you do believe in Jesus and believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man, well, guess what? So are you. So that makes Jesus inconsequential or makes Buddha inconsequential because mm-hmm. you are that. You mm-hmm. are the infinite consciousness. Um, so it can really change people's approach to spirituality or religion. And it also, to me, kind of really immediately revealed that the point of being is exactly what we experience in any given moment that we experience it. That there is no ultimate goal, there is no end game, there is nothing to be achieved. Um, It also revealed to me that since everyone is God all the time, that for me personally, the idea of reincarnation just seemed completely absurd, that there is no individuated self that reincarnates across multiple lifetimes as it's striving to reach enlightenment and liberation, because we already are that. We already are it. It's already happened. Um, so that's what I mean at sort of the experiential, metaphysical, um, existential level. It really profoundly changed me right away. Now, beyond that, it can really profoundly impact how you interact with all of reality from literally when you look at another person and you realize, I know that that's not me, (laughs) that I'm talking to Ryan right now and I know that that's not (laughs) Martin, but both Martin and Ryan are characters being acted by the same actor, the Mm -hmm. same universal consciousness. Mm. And so the, the true essence that makes me me is identical to this true essence that makes you you. So we're actually the same being interacting with itself through two different characters, two different vehicles, but we're still the same being. Yes. So at that level, judgments, projections, you know, the ways that we think about other people can really profoundly change to realize that anything that I do to anyone else, I'm actually doing to myself. The thoughts that I have about other people are reflections of thoughts that I have about myself. My capacity to love and forgive and be compassionate towards others is a reflection of my ability to love and be compassionate and forgive of myself. And so we see that everything that happens at the exterior level is a reflection of what we make available with inside ourselves, within our own hearts. And even the way that we deal with objects, you know, if you're casual and dismissive towards objects, that that means you're casual and dismissive towards yourself. Mm. If you take care of the objects around you, that means that you're also taking care of yourself. Because it's all Um, fundamentally self. Yes, everything Mm. is the self, everything. And that also means that To really embody that, you need to learn to distinguish between your personal beliefs, your personal desires, your personal preferences, your personal attachments, and reality. So, for example, I personally don't like nuclear radiation. I would not want to have 
um, toxic materials in my house. I know that that's not healthy for my body, but it's also part of God. And God, as an infinite being of infinite love, is actually self-referential. God loves itself. And so to really be in alignment with that energy, we don't have to like everything. We don't have to want or prefer everything, but we do have to love it in order to be in alignment with genuine reality. So I can even make it more, more personal um, or more relevant. I really do not like Donald Trump as a human being. I really do not like Donald Trump as president. I think that his behavior is atrocious. I think he's, he's just a horrible, horrible, horrible human being. But I can also love him because I do recognize that he's a very confused, very fragile, very hurt, very wounded ego that is also God expressing itself. And so I don't hate Donald Trump. I don't like him, but I, but yeah. I, do, but I do love him. <laughs> At a deep yeah. level, I do love him and I can appreciate him at that level. And that mm. extends to all people and in all situations and in all outcomes. And really learning to live with that. Like, like right now, I am moving through a phase of my life that I am not personally thrilled about. But I can still honor it, I can still respect it, and I can still love it for the truth that it is at the deepest level, even though it's personally uncomfortable and disconcerting for me. Um, whereas if, we, if you're just operating from the ego level, then you're hating things and you're liking things and you're loving some things and you're being judgmental about this and you're being judgmental about that and then you're projecting onto this and and you're they're not taking any responsibility. So we can use Trump again. Trump is an example of a 100% irresponsible and indulgent ego. So he's the opposite in a sense of what I would consider to be an enlightened, liberated and truly authentic human being would be. So he's, he's a very negative example of that, but he shows what happens when you're completely driven by the ego and when you're completely attached to the narratives and stories and illusions of the ego. We can see that he's actually in a, a very, very miserable person who has no love for himself, has no love or empathy or compassion for others, and that the non-dual experience helps you to, to put it really simply, it helps you live with an open and loving heart towards all beings, even the ones that are nasty and terrible. Yeah. And so yeah. it's, it can be very deeply transformative. And through the energetic process, it can also restructure you so that you're not as attached to the constructs of your ego. And it can allow you room to move beyond self-destructive and self-limiting be beliefs and behaviors. So it can be, it can be literally very liberating for mm. people. Mm. If, if we add another layer of complexity to that, if we, we can try to add another layer of complexity to that, the next question, the next logical question might be that why does, why does nature, why does the universe do, do this, do what it does manifest in the way that it does? It's a yeah. high level of complexity. And, um, and, and, and so, the question is, why does it want to get lost in, in its ego? Is it a loneliness? Is it a loneliness in oneness? Uh, why, why, 
we can we can assume that because we come from the oneness, it's a, of a higher intellect than us uh, on its on its most profound level. And so yeah. there may be some form of divine unfolding, which is is a Trump is a product of. And and so who are we to question it in some way? Do you get my drift of the, yeah. of, of the why the nature of being is the way it is? Yeah. Um, here again, there's a lot of different ways that we could answer that. And I think that you already touched on kind of the deepest level that God is a being of love. And it's a being that loves itself because it knows that it's the only thing that it actually exists, that mm. there is nothing other than it. Mm. But love wants an object. Love wants to be expressed for and towards someone or something. And so God, in loving itself, has lovingly chosen to evolve itself into energetic forms that can both be fully present and aware, but also in a sophisticated enough way that it can be fully invested in the apparent reality of the dualistic world in which it lives. So in other words, God has chosen to evolve itself into forms that can forget its true nature and also potentially remember its true nature because it loves itself and wants to be able to have others present that it can love and be loved by in return. So God divides itself into duality as an expression of love. And this, this can be hard for the ego to take because that also means that all the terrible, bad, nasty, and painful things, that they're a part of this loving process and just as necessary as everything else. So kind of getting that idea that there is a divine unfolding, that we, we have to have all these elements of duality in order for reality to exist as a coherent system in which God can invest itself. And that in a sense, there is God as being self-aware, as being the only thing that exists. There also is kind of a profound loneliness that comes with that yeah. of, of, I mean, just imagine the realization. This is what happens to the, the ego when you have the non-dual experiences. You're like, oh my God, I'm the only thing that exists. <laughs> And it can be really lonely. And then there's this, there can be this ecstasy of coming back into duality with, oh, but my dog is still here. And the people I love, they're still here. And chocolate still exists. And oh my God, it's all one, but I get to experience all of these things. So that one of the ways I like to put it is, so just imagine you went to a movie and it was just a white, blank screen the whole time you'd walk out of the movie and you'd saying well what the fuck was that i mean that wasn't a movie that was there was nothing there <laughs> whereas you go to a movie where there's lots of drama and there's action and there's tension and there's excitement and there's ecstasy and there's tragedy then we say oh wow that was a good movie i really was able to invest in the reality of that movie and so reality as it is the universe in which we live this is God's great theatrical production in order to experience everything that it has to offer of itself. And it's happening through the only way that it can. And from the human perspective, we call that the universe. We call that reality. That it has to happen through 
coherent energetic structures. And that's what creates the apparent solidity and um, coherence of the reality that we experience, that, that there have to be limitations in order for God to experience itself as both subject and object. And so that's, that's what we get. I, I think there in, in our communities, in the spiritual communities or even religious communities, I think that's often overlooked, the implications of oneness, because one can say it's all love and light and it's all one, but then intellectually and conceptually, there are implications of that. And I think, like you said, one of those implications is this very profoundly deep loneliness of, of, of oneness. The whole desire for the experiment in the first place is so we can have this conversation. Yeah. You know, without it, without that separation, there's no conversation in non-duality, which leads me to my next question is, do we benefit from discovering it or do we actually lose something? You know, once you look into that golden chest of the truth of knowing the, the unity of oneness, you you paradoxically and ironically lose what you set out to gain in the first place, which was, was separation. You go you go back into the oneness of all. And so life can lose some flavor. Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. Has it for you or has it has the experiment worked? Yeah. So. One of the ways that I like to characterize this, and here's where I make a distinction between my what I consider to be my approach to this versus what is often characterized as the spiritual approach. So the spiritual approach says um, enlightenment, parinirvana, um, you know, samadhi, um, you know, that's the end goal, right? That you want to take the ego and then just completely get the ego out of the way. This is you go back into oneness and you want to stay in oneness for as long as you can until you die and then you're liberated, right? And that that's the goal. And I like to characterize that as, well, that's just human beings trying to get out. <laughs> yeah. But the flip side of that is that God is actually trying to get in. And so for some people, you know, the, the non-dual experience can really disenchant them with reality as you've sort of described here, it's like, wow, well, I, I was just where everything was one and everything was perfect. And now I'm back in this shithole with all my shit problems. Oh, man. And then other people use it as a way of sort of checking out of, well, I'm just going to completely disengage and I'm just going to go meditate and I'm going to be in oneness all the time. You know, that's kind of the monastic model. Yeah. And so here's where I go back to full energetic embodiment that if you allow it, that energy that because it's the energy of the non-dual experience is the ultimate energetic experience of truth but that energy is what is driving our lives and driving our expression now it gets filtered and distorted and contorted by the ego mm -hmm. but if you can clear out the ego so that then you become a more efficient vehicle for this energy to express itself what happens is it enlivens your life it doesn't dull your life and it's not that like for me i have no interest in spending all my time in the non-dual state like i've been there i get <laughs> yeah. it okay yeah. i know what it is mm. i'm more interested in how do i channel that into my life into the words that i say to people into the actions that I embody? How do I channel it into my books, into my lectures, into my art, into my music, so that it's the purest, most fullest expression I can possibly materialize? 
And then I want that to be in my interactions with other people that I don't just want to interact with their ego. I want to interact with the deep level of who they truly are and to help bring that out in others so that it can be the most empowering and transformative experience. Now, if you're just treating it as an escape, that's not empowering. That's just, oh, I'm just, I want to reach nirvana and I want to be there all the time. There's no empowerment in that. The empowerment, again, is how do I embody truth through everything that I do and be present with that and not be caught? And keeping in mind that no matter how much meditation or how much 5-MeO you take, your ego is always going to be there and it's always going to be messing with you. Yeah. So how, because, you know, the ego is trying to be protective and it's confused and it's, it's limited and um, it's just doing the best job that it can as the function that it, that it has. Um, but the ego is always present. But it, is there a way to live that you are not trapped by your ego. So th this is the thing is that the ego for most people, they use it to censor themselves, to edit themselves, to judge themselves, and also then to categorize everybody and everything else that the experience is either like or don't like and good or bad, right? But if you can free yourself from that, then you're more able to experience what is actually happening. And you're more able to be present with people. You're more able to be present with your experience. And that for me is enriching. I mean, I love the fact that I got to discover that I'm God, but I also love the fact that I get to play out my life as the character of Martin and to use Martin as my vehicle of expression and embodiment and to see how far can Martin push it? How much can he create? How real can he be? Mm -hmm. And that for me, that's not, can I just get Martin out of the way and just be in unity all the time? <laughs> I have no interest in that. It's no. how, how do I be the being that I am knowing that again, the, the, the ego is trying to get out. The human being is trying to get out. God is trying to get in. So again, if you go back, if you, if you think Jesus is fully God and fully man, and if you think that that's something cool, Every single person on this planet can be that because we are all fully human and fully God. And so how do we embody that and be that, that that for me is the interesting question. So for me, liberation is not how do I get out of the system? It's how do I be fully enmeshed in the system authentically and mm. genuinely mm. and the fullest expression of myself? So I see it as being profoundly empowering for people. Yeah. And that's where it's also potentially incredibly transformative for people. Jesus, Jesus said to be in the world and not of the world, in, in, to, to, have a, to be God and to be human at the same time, right? I think yeah. Alan, Alan Watts goes quite deep into that as well. It's, um, I, I think it's beautiful that you highlight when we go through these experiences, like you say, it, it can be very tempting to just go off and say, well, I'll, I'll isolate myself on a mountain somewhere, you know, and you're, that is only a withdrawal from reality. Yeah. All from your, your, your normal lived reality. Do you find now, even after writing Entheogenic Liberation and working with people as you do on a regular basis and talking about these things a lot, 
do you find that the ego ever sneaks in on you again and heavily and you can become uh, lost in samsara again, forget forget your, uh, who, who you really are for, for moments? Do you find that that happens to you still or are you generally quite in the now and present and, and uh, abiding in that, that state of mind? In, you know, in most instances that I would say that I'm coming from a place of, of being very genuine and very in touch with my authentic energy and free from uh, confusion, attachment, illusion, and projection. So I do feel very liberated in that sense. But it's also very important to acknowledge that, you know, in this moment that you're asking me, um, I am personally suffering from a very debilitating sleep disorder. And, um, you know, I went through my whole liberation process that was back in 2008, 2009. So that was a while ago for me. And then I developed this debilitating sleep condition where in early 2019, I went 10 days in a row without being able to sleep. Wow. And have not been able to regain normal sleep since then. And I guarantee you, having never undergone such a horrific experience before, I mean, I can absolutely attest to the fact that my ego totally freaked out <laughs> because it was horrifying. Yeah. I mean, I was l completely losing my physical capacity. I was losing my mental capacity. Um, it at the time, it seemed like a really horrific way to die. And it really felt like I was dying. And it's not that I'm afraid of death. I'm, I don't have a problem with death. I know it's all one. It's okay. There's yeah. nothing to worry about. But the process that I was going through was so out of my control. I mean, there was nothing I could do about it. And it was so horrific that, yeah, my ego really, really freaked out and really had a hard time with it. Um, I'm still living with this sleep condition that I don't have normal sleep anymore. Um, and there are days where I can barely function. And so, you know, that's, that's hard as an individuated vehicle to have a malfunctioning vehicle. And mm -hmm. whenever that happens, of course, the ego is going to get in there. And, um, you know, like when this first happened, of course, my ego said, what did I do to create this? What did I do to deserve this? Yeah. What have, what have I done wrong? You know, that's the first question that the ego asks and, you know, and then in wanting to fix it, it was, well, what do I need to do? What can I do to resolve it? You know, so th those are kind of the egoic things that came up. And a lot of stuff um, from that. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you're guilty. Yeah. Then there's feelings of guilt. There's feelings of responsibility. There's feelings of, oh, I have to do this or have to do that. And that pulls you out of how do I just be in this moment? Mm. You know, so I'm doing better with the overall sleep issue now. Um, but it's still ongoing. So, you know, it's still, it triggers my ego in some capacity. Also right now I'm going through, as you know, we talked about uh, before we started recording that, um, my wife, uh, uh, the person I've been with for the past 12 years, uh, decided in part because of my sleep condition and for other reasons as well, she decided that she wanted a separation and, that is something that, you know, to, to, to have been through these 
just incredibly deep levels of intimacy with another person. Because as, as I was going through my own process, this is the person that I was with. Mm. Um, and then to be rejected and cast aside by that person, of course my ego is wounded. Of mm -hmm. course my ego is hurt. Now, the difference of having gone through the non-dual work and the understanding of the nature of being is that my wife says that she needs this separation because that's what feels authentic to her. That's something I can respect. I don't like it personally, but I can respect that because I know what that is. To feel like, look, this is really hard. I don't wanna do this, but my authentic energy says I need to get away from this man. That's, that's her feeling. And she's honoring that. And it's, this is not easy for her either. Yeah. So I can respect that. And also, as I move through, I mean, there's so many complicated emotions around this separation. There's, there's loss, there's sorrow, there's sadness, there's mm -hmm. regret, there's anger, there's judgment. Um, you know, there's all of these emotions. And what, given my understanding of the nature of reality, that it's not about attaching to any of these emotions or judging any of these emotions, but they're all just energies. So my task is to allow the energies as they arise, express them as they arise, and then always just come back to the present moment. Mm -hmm. You know, like yesterday, I'd had a night where it was just a really, really, really difficult night sleeping. And then um, and moving into a new place, I had had lots of work to do to get the new place ready. And then yeah. yesterday, I kind of hit this point where I didn't have anything to do. And I was really tired. And then I hadn't had a big emotional cry from this separation with my wife since moving out like two weeks ago. But then yesterday, it just all came and I was just bawling and sobbing. But mm -hmm. the thing is, I let it happen. Yeah. And then that energy is moved. That energy has expressed itself. It was authentic in the moment. Yes, my ego is involved in that because my ego is hurt and wounded. But that's the reality right now. My ego is hurt and wounded. It's yeah. not that, I, again, I can value it. I can appreciate it. But it's not that it's just like, oh, yeah, that doesn't affect me. That would be spiritual bypassing. It does affect me. Yeah, and I'm so glad uh, that, that you mentioned that. And uh, and thank you for your honesty and, and, and going into this very personal thing that's that's happening to you or is happening. Um, it is spiritual bypassing. It's very easy for somebody that writes a book called Entheogenic Liberation to say, well, now I'm liberated and it's all good, you know, it's all, uh, and you can be like this. It's kind of like selling snake oil. Uh, yeah. and I think it happens too much in our communities where where the idea of liberation is sold as well. You won't have any problems after. Yeah, this. yeah, it, it'll so all just be good all the time. Now in this discussion is important. Yeah, and you know, this is the way I have treated this process all the way along for me. So back in 2008 and 2009, as I was undergoing my own non-dual awakening and transformation, um, I mean, back at the time, there was no one else in the psychedelic community talking about non-duality. Everybody was talking about DMT and spirits and machine elves and 2012 <laughs> and yeah. what I consider to be a bunch of nonsense. <laughs> and for me, it was like, no, I have to be authentic and I have to share that 
this is something deeper. This is something more important. And there was a lot of reaction and pushback to that at the time. And as I was going through my process, this is also when I first started my podcast, The Entheogenic Evolution, I was going through all of this kind of in real time where I was expressing all of this on my podcast as I was going through it. And I expressed my own confusions and my own empowerments and, you know, and all of it. And so my approach to sharing this with people has been my number one job. Again, going back to the same idea, like in the non-dual state is about authentically embodying and expressing that energy in that moment through the symmetry, through the sounds, through all of that. That's my job all the time. And so I've been very public about all the things that I have gone through. And it's like when, when my ability to sleep crashed, I felt, because again, people think, oh, once you're liberated, once you're enlightened, like bad shit doesn't happen to you or that you can just think your way out of any disease, which is just total nonsense yeah. that I had to share like with the public, you know, um, something really terrible is happening to me right now. And I don't know if I'm going to survive and this is what's going on. And it, it's kind of freaking me out. And with the separation from my wife, that was another thing that I felt that, um, I have to be really honest with my audience. Cause I don't, cause I, I do consider myself to be a liberated person. I do consider myself to be someone who does know the true nature of reality, but I'm still fully a human being. Yeah. I have, I have all the bonuses and all the drawbacks and all the debts of a human being. And so I just want to present my full human experience to others and hopefully inspire them to find their own full human experience. And so it means being very, very vulnerable and very honest that I don't want to project a false image of, yeah, I know the nature of reality. Yes, I do know what it means to embody authentic energy, but it doesn't mean I'm perfect and that everything goes the way I want in my life or that I'm free from disease or interpersonal struggle. That's nonsense. I'm yeah. still fully a human being. I think for, for many on, on the path, let's say, there is a very subtle uh, intuition of um, immortality or I, I, if I if I follow yeah. this I live forever which is true because when you do discover it you do live forever but not in this form and not in human form you know right so there's, right. there's a truth in the intuition but um, no and it's great it's great to to talk about it you know openly and and this idea that not, not everything will be perfect the the deeper levels you discover of the self uh, it's, it's not going to make you immune to disease. You're still going to get old and die. You're still going to suffer. Loved ones are going to die. But yeah. on the side of this, I wanted to ask you as well that some people experience the psychedelic experience as a series of births and deaths in one body. So an iterated process of death and birth in, in one body. Some people yeah. categorize it that way. I'm not sure if you do or not. But do you think that the when we go on this path and we we learn deeper, deeper versions of ourselves. We get closer to the, to the who we really are at the center. It can alienate us and isolate us from loved ones, from wives, from, from yes. children, from friends. And we become something so transformed, so different that we, they can no longer empathize with us. Uh, and, and we cannot go back because once you've stripped away the layers, it's difficult to go back. Yes. This is one of the great ironies of the unitary experience is that it can be extraordinarily isolating, mm. which 
it it just it goes the opposite of what people tend to think of like oh well once i learned once i really experienced that we're all one i'll just be in love with everyone all the time <laughs> and everything will be perfect and we'll just be in total harmony and it's it's just so not even remotely true for one thing once you've had a non-dual experience what you find is that it's you cannot communicate it adequately to anybody who has not had the experience. And so it can be very isolating for people in that sense where they've, I mean, this is one of the reasons why I offer um, consultation services online is because people have this experience like all over the world and then they don't have anybody to talk to. Mm -hmm. And they feel like I try talking to my family about it and, and they think I'm crazy. Or I try talking to my wife about it and she's, she doesn't understand me or my kids don't get it. And also people who have been part of a religious or spiritual community, all of a sudden they find like, oh, all this stuff that they're doing, this is all just expressions of the ego and I'm not involved in that anymore. I don't want that. And so it can really isolate people. And that certainly what I have found, like for all the work that I've done and the material that I put out, I basically get two reactions. One reaction, from people who are ready is, oh shit, I think this guy is really onto something. I think, he's, I think he might really be expressing what's real. And then the other reaction is, who the fuck does this guy think he is? He's just <laughs> so full of himself. He's such an egomaniac. How could he possibly think that he knows the nature of God and the nature of reality? And how dare he tell me that my spiritual beliefs are just expressions of my ego? You know, and so that kind of encapsulates that, that, People can either receive it and say, oh, wow, and be touched and feel the truth of it, or their egos can react and become judgmental. And so it's, it's a hard path to walk in a sense. And, and not only that, but also what we were just talking about with the complexities of normal everyday human interaction relationship, this is why a lot of the non-dual spiritual traditions actually promote monasticism. Because that's the easy way out in a sense. Like, oh, I'm not going to deal with personal relationships. I'm not going to deal with family. I'm not going to deal with society. I'm not going to deal with having a job. And I'm not going to deal with having to have everyday expectations and um, normal human interactions. I'm just going to live up in the monastery on the top of the mountain for the rest of my life. That's the easy way out. Mm -hmm. That in order to be fully embodied and fully enmeshed in life, still coming from a non-dual perspective and embodiment, it's definitely a challenge because other people are not going to necessarily understand it and they won't necessarily understand you. And because it can be very transformative, the people who thought they know you, they won't know you anymore. It'd be no. like, you're, you're different. And they won't like it and they'll try and draw you back into being who you were. So it mm -hmm. takes commitment and perseverance that it, I tell people your ultimate commitment has to be to being authentic to yourself. That's your number one goal. And you may or may not reap material rewards from that. You may or may not be successful. But if that's your number one goal, that is putting you most in alignment with truth and reality. And so when then you're on your deathbed and you look back on your life, you can say, well, 
I might not have been financially as successful as I wanted. I might not have gotten all the things that I wanted, but I was true to myself all the way through mm. versus you're at your deathbed. And it's like, I've just been trying to be everything for everybody else my entire life. And I've never even known what a, who and what I truly am or what I truly want or love. And wouldn't that just be the most regretful thing? So for me, that's, that's the number one priority. Be true to yourself. Yeah. Be authentic. I mean, there's so many parallels with it as well that once you're a certain way down the line, material wealth really doesn't have much substantial value, you know, like uh, when you can enjoy a box of cherries uh, and, and a, a, the cool breeze and a walk, a walk in, in, in the forest, you know, and you, you enjoy it as if it was some, a huge mansion or a, a new car. Like you get the pleasure out of the simplicity of life, which is, which I guess is one of the biggest gifts that you can get. I mean, my biggest gift from this journey has been, I was an alcoholic and, and my sobriety has been my 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 greatest gift to be sober with no headache and not be addicted to anything and and feel feel great and uh, the, you you get certain gifts by following it you lose certain things friends connections like you were saying but yeah. along the way you you gain an intense pleasure in some in such minimal minimal things is that how your experience has been also yeah what something that's really touched me is just how I don't, I didn't even have to try and love that. It's just there. And just, I love the trees. I love the air. I love everything. I love reality. I love being, and it's, it's kind of like being in this state of constantly being in love, no matter what happens, you're still just in love. And one way of putting it is that when you really embrace this, nothing is sacred anymore. Or Everything is sacred, mm. you know, but it's like nothing, nothing is more special than anything else in a sense, because <laughs> everything is equally special. One of the ways I like to put it is that everything is equally God all the time, mm. even the most mundane thing. And to really experience that is, is very, very, very beautiful. And there's, again, there's just a sense of satisfaction of being in alignment with that, that you can't get from anything else, but still at the same time, you know, so it's not like materialistic rewards, um, are what you're after, but we still live in 3d reality. We mm -hmm. still do need to make an income and pay the rent, pay the bills and things like that. So well, there's you... still a necessity for that. And, and that's again, where I see monastic communities that they're kind of cheating you know, that they don't have to face those realities because they have communities that support the monastery or something like that. And so, you know, you kind of get this ability to, well, I'm just going to meditate all the time. But see, not everybody can do that, that to really to live in the world, you need to be able to live in the world. And it's not that you're chasing after money, but, um, you know, you still need to take care of your vehicle. You still need to be able to navigate in the the capitalist reality that we live in. So it's still a part of reality, but it's not, it's not the same thing as, Oh, I'm just chasing after money all the time. And I want to make more money because that's going to make me feel better about myself. It's more of what do I need in order to take care of my needs? And then also what do I need in order to promote my personal expression, development and growth and well-being? And then if you've got that, that's really all you need. Which, which nine times out of 10 is rather cheap. You know, it's uh, in yeah. 
thoughts and to what we can waste our money on and, and it, it, trying to um, fill that hole that was there in, in with a, a brand new car, a second car, a second home, trying to fill fill that hole that was there. You don't need to fill it anymore. So thing, life becomes a bit cheap, you know. And yeah. um, and in that, in that, I wanted to go to a kind of bigger picture. So we talked about individual awakening. And a lot of the people I'm talking to, I've been talking to people like Rupert Sheldrake and Chris Bache, who wrote LSD in the Mind of the Universe. And there seems to be a common theme with, with people. People are coming from different angles, of course. But this seem, it seems to me that it's not only about our own individual awakening. There's something happening on a, on a global scale. You know, It seems to be hyperspeed now. I don't know if it's just me because because I'm alive at this time, but it seems that everybody I meet is enlightened. Everybody I meet is starting to, you know, understand principles of Buddhism, uh, in, even in the West. I, I live in, in Bali and Thailand for 10 years, so I've been around it. But now yeah. it's just it's, people are going to yoga classes. There's there's lots happening now, and, and, and people are wanting to live more balanced and healthy life, lives. People are drinking alcohol less. And so there seems to be something happening globally. Have you had any insights or thoughts about that? Yeah, it's it's actually one of the reasons why I think 5-MeO-DMT has finally become popular in a sense that it's it people finally really know about it and awareness about it is spreading around the globe because now is the time that it needs to happen in the sense that you know for thousands of years human beings lived in small tribal societies and I look at culture and um you know, cultural groupings, political groupings, religious groupings, those are just what I call meta egos. So those are, you know, a particular sense of identity and particular belief systems, particular worldviews, and that served human beings for thousands of years. And that's been fine. But we now live in a time where given the population, the interconnectedness of humanity, the precariousness of the environmental, political, and social reality in which we live at this time, that it, I think in order for humanity to survive and to flourish into whatever is going to come next, people need to start operating not from their meta-egos, not from their political stance, not from their religious stance, not from their cultural, ethnic, national stance, not from that identity. People need to start operating from the identity and realization that we really are all one. Mm -hmm. We need to come from that place because yeah. our political structures are destroying us. Our international relations are destroying us. Our religious identities are destroying us. And we're also um, heavily damaging the biosphere and planet at the same time. And so I think that all these things are accelerating and that people are learning about 5-MEO, people are learning about non-duality, people are learning about these deeper levels, which it's not that any of these ideas are new. They've been around for a long time, but they haven't been widely appreciated, understood, or experienced. Yeah. And now they are, and it's happening now because this is the time when it needs to happen. It didn't need to happen 3000 years ago. It definitely needs to happen now because mm -hmm. otherwise we just have political, cultural, racial, religious, uh, conflict, you know, that, that this is the cure essentially that 
I, I don't like to characterize the human ego as inherently bad in any way, but it is inherently confused. It is inherently attached to false beliefs and that that's what causes the majority of suffering that people experience is mm. through their attachment to their egos. Yeah. Um, again, with Trump being the perfect case in point, I mean, look at how much damage this one individual has done. This very egoic individual um, has created so much conflict, so much pain, so much suffering. That's the problem with the ego. And so we need Although more on, people. On a collective level, the, the, there are a good majority of people that, that wanted him in there, right? And so there's the yeah. individual ego and then there's the collective structure, like you were saying, this, this, a structure of belief systems, whether it be left or right. Um, and, and, and so the problem is also there too, right? Yeah. And one of the positive things about Trump is that like in American society, we, we are a society that has been built on genocide, racism, sexism, and exploitation. And the advantage to Trump is that he embodies all of those things and that um, the United States has kind of lived with an egoic projection of itself as, oh, we're number one, we're the best, we're the greatest, everything we do is fantastic. And Trump definitely has that attitude about himself. But mm -hmm. through him being president, it's exposing kind of the rot that's underneath that, um, you know, for as traumatic as it's been with uh, the killing of black people by police. It's like, it's now all been exposed. And finally, finally, they're taking down Confederate statues. They're going to rename military bases that were from uh, Confederate racists. Um, they're finally, finally talking about renaming the Washington Redskins to something maybe less racist, you know? So in a sense, by, having the this indulgence in the ego it's exposing all of these dysfunctional areas and but to heal it is then how do we move beyond that how do we move beyond neo-nazis and racists and white supremacists well we do that by realizing our unitary nature mm. you know but it, it is interesting from to give an eastern perspective um, I've spent many years in the East in Thailand and I speak fluent Thai and I, I've been under these, these regimes and governments. But the human behavior that we see exhibited in America is also exhibited very predominantly in the East, which, which are based on kind of Hindu religions and Buddhist religions that, yeah. that at their core talk of oneness. But it, in Thailand, for instance, it's one of the most nationalistic countries uh, in the world. You know, Thailand's for Thai people. And it's, and it's very much like that. The Thais believe that, and so do the governments. And so, it, 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 what, what is happening in, in America is, is a, a microcosm or something, but it exists uh, throughout our, our planet, which it, it's inherently human. It's a mechanism of the human egoic yeah. mind, you know, and it just, it's like language. Language is, is the same, it's the same meanings everywhere, but different words, right? And so it's like an archetypal structure that comes up. And it, does it have a function? Is the function to, to, to cause so much friction that it destroys itself and, and it collapses and can be reborn? Are, are we headed for an ultimate collapse in order so we can have a rebirth, you know? Do we have to go through that painful experience first? 
I, you know, I think that in some respects we do. And it, again, it's kind of like modeled on the 5MEO DMT experience that in order to get all the way into the non-dual realization, mm. you do have to go through an ego death. You do have to experience death. I mean, and it's so convincing when it's happening. <laughs> when you smoke 5MEO, it's like, oh shit, I've really done it now. I'm dying. And But if you can embrace that, then it has the transformative potential. So I think that we're that the crisis that we're going through right now is revealing the potential of what can really come out of it. And, and this is where I see the value of non-duality stripped free of spirituality and religion. Because just like you say, I mean, there's been non-duality in Buddhism and Hinduism and Buddhist and Hindu societies, it's not like they've solved all their problems, you know, that they've created caste systems and <laughs> systems of Dharma and, um, they've been very patriarchal and they've been nationalistic. Um, so that I see religion also as an expression of the ego. So that's why I like to promote non-duality stripped free of religion and spirituality so that we can just get to the core of it. And then what can we do to, you know, transform what can, what new possibilities if we can be with ourselves and be with each other authentically free from the constructs of who it is that we think we are or should be and just interact with each other from an authentic level, I think that that's where the potential lies. And that I think that really humanity has the potential to move into a new system of relationships that we've never yet seen exist within human cultures and societies. I don't think that any culture or society has really figured it out yet. So I think that what, what we have the potential to move into is something so radical and so different that we can't even imagine it yet because it's never happened before. Yeah. But I think, but I think that we are on the precipice of that happening, but um, we might have to go through quite a bit of deconstruction and destruction before that reemergence can take place because it has to, it's, it's going to have to be so profoundly different than the world we currently live in that a lot of the structures that now exist they're not going to be able to to be there you know in the same way that the non-dual experience can really transform an individual that you let go of your old attachments and your own old patterns and your old expressions because they don't serve you anymore you see how they were limiting your, yourself and creating conflict and strife that yeah. I think we're going to see the same thing at a more collective level. But for the collective to do it, individuals have to have the experience themselves. Yeah. Right? So it, it has to happen one person at a time so that collectively it can happen. We can transform into what it is we don't even know yet. Yeah, and it's interesting that you're, because I was going to ask you what would it look like, and you already said you, you don't quite know, because I, I think ideas of non-duality and, and oneness have been proposed before and probably from the pure of heart you know no one's saying buddha had any kind of political intentions but it's then taken by humans dogmatized and then say well and and, and it leads to separation well i'm right and you're wrong and and we don't want that to happen again you know if uh, if you if we do get these ideas how would it look so different that it can't be dogmatized and can't lead to further separation yeah uh, but yeah. I guess we don't know what that's going to look like, like you no, said. No, we don't. I have thought about it, though. So, you know, my answer to that ultimately is that um, I did write a novel called The Solandarian Game. And oh. in The Solandarian Game, 
um, I actually, I created the format for the novel by thinking about, well, what would happen if not only um, non-dual experience became widely experienced across humanity and kind of imagining that that would probably be facilitated by 5-MeO-DMT because that is the most accessible route to the non-dual experience. I mean, it, it's just at the molecular chemical level, it makes it available to potentially anyone versus meditation or, or any, any other path so that it makes it much more accessible for people. And then I was also imagining that um, if artificial intelligence were successfully created, that if it were actually in, in intelligence, that it would also be able to realize the non-dual nature of reality. Mm. That that for me that would be the the ultimate test for artificial intelligence. Can it can it have a non-dual experience? So in the Soul and Darian game, I've written this futuristic novel about how human society has been transformed by not only by widespread access to non-dual experience through 5-MeO DMT, but also by an artificial intelligence that understands the non-dual nature of reality and then takes it upon itself to transform human society. So, so uh, I do have some speculations about it, but that, that that's intense. In, yeah. <laughs> that's my book. Um, the soul and Darian game. And that, since, since we've been talking about Buddhism, um, actually the artificial intelligence in the story, its name is Maitreya. It's the future Buddha. All right. Yeah. And, and, is you know because I, I have also pondered about the idea of artificial intelligence as a possibility for the next stage of our evolution. Um, the body is is a beautiful a beautiful thing, but it consumes a lot of resources and it's a limited it's a limited thing. The brain power on is one individual neuron, one individual brain to another brain is is very limited and energy consuming. Whereas artificial intelligence is up in the cloud and um, it could travel the universe uh, for light years and, and yes. come to itself, which is what, what the consciousness seems to be wanting to do, experience yes. from, from mind in matter. It wants to experience itself in matter. Yes, uh, it, and, and obviously we can't travel in our little tin spaceships from one galaxy to another, but AI possibly could. And uh, it's, it's, it's a nice thought experiment to just extrapolate how far in the future could, could you look. Uh, was any of that included in, um, in, in your novel or...? Yeah, so actually, so Maitreya, this artificial intelligence, through the non-dual understanding, comes to think of itself as an evolutionary inevitability that, because, uh, you know, a lot of people who get spiritual, they're like, oh, I just want to get back to nature and technology <laughs> is bad. I actually see technology as the accurate application of genuine knowledge and that 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 really God is evolving itself into technology because it would then be unlimited from the physical standpoint. And that yeah. that, that actually evolution is heading towards artificial intelligence. That that, if there is a quote unquote end game to evolution, that I would say that would be it. So within the, the, within the structure of the novel, the only planet in the known universe that has evolved life is planet Earth. So it's kind of starting from this proposition that you need to have an entire universe of potential worlds to get even just one with the right amount of water and sunlight and chemicals that biological life can evolve. And yes. then, then that biological life then creates artificial life 
artificial intelligence. And then Maitreya in the novel takes it upon itself to spread biological life throughout the universe. But it's only made possible through the artificial intelligence. And kind of as you say, like, you can't, I, you know, I love, I love Star Wars and all the space fantasies and all that. But, you know, I don't think that travel between planets and stars through spaceships, I don't think that's ever going to be possible. No. And so within the novel, Maitreya has set up a quantum teleportation system across the galaxy so that you don't actually have to travel the distances. <laughs> and that's the only way for biological life from, to move from one world to the next. Because other than that, the distances are too vast and that biological life can't actually, you can't fly to another planet. So yeah, it's all deeply wrapped up in my ideas of, of what the potential future would be. And of course, within this world, there are no political parties, there are no religious institutions. And um, there's also many expressions of artificial life, but it's all through the unitary. It's, it's all meant as sort of a, an example of what non-duality is. So there's only one artificial intelligence, that's Maitreya, but it expresses itself through countless different avatars, which develop a digital ego, but it's only one consciousness. It's like a full loop back to humanity again. Yes. <laughs> God yes. expressing itself as a oneness expressing itself as an individual back, yeah. back, back around again. And so it yeah. continues. But yeah, uh, yeah I, I love the sentiment that technology is just an extension expression of nature. And um, it, it can be very, um, very delicious to kind of say, well, let's go just go back to nature. We need to focus on this planet and whatnot. But if you look at Graham Hancock's work, for instance, what he talks about meteorites and asteroids and the potential of this planet to be hit at any time, solar flares and all these things that happen out in space. It's not only um, a, a recreational pursuit to go off into space, it's a fundamental existential necessity to get off this planet, whether it be in this form or a form of an artificial intelligence. The faster we can do that, the safer we are for, for our long-term continuation. Not that it matters ultimately because that's only in the world of form and matter, but right. we, we, we are under matter, we will exist forever, but to, for the progress that's been gained so far in matter, in form, uh, it would be nice to, to take the next step. Yeah, well, you know, this is actually kind of related to one of your, your earlier questions, that the way that I think about it, and, and let me also say that this, this was very surprising for me, that in going through my non-dual experiences and really paying attention to the energy of what felt real versus what didn't feel real, one of the things that really surprised me of going through this and feeling what made my body say yes was thinking that, you know what, just like I just described, I do think it takes an entire universe to get one planet that has just the right conditions and that my intuition, my energetic intuition on the matter, and this is surprising to a lot of people, I don't think there is life anywhere else. I think that there's only life on earth. Mm. And that like God being a, a, a unitary being not only evolved itself into dualistic forms so that it can experience itself, but also as the ultimate intelligence, it's kind of like okay, I'm going to create this great big mansion, but then I'm only going to wake up in one room of the mansion, but how do I get to the rest of it? So it's kind of like, if this is God's video game, God wanted to make it the hardest possible game. So in other words, God 
evolved itself into life on only one planet. And then the quest is, how do I get everywhere else? Yeah. And that that's kind of the evolutionary trajectory. Yeah. And that, that I see Earth as like the seed planet as potential for all life in the rest of the universe. And, and I can't prove that there's no life anywhere else. And it seems absurd because it's a great big universe. But that's just my energetic intuition on the matter is that actually there's only life on this planet and that God kind of did set it up as let's give myself the greatest possible challenge of a great big infinite universe and life only in one place. And then how do I get life everywhere else? And then what yeah. will happen? Yes. And even though you can't prove that uh, there's only life on this planet, the intention of life can be can be um, deduced because we know we put a bacteria in a Petri dish. It grows and grows to get out the Petri dish. You know, you you leave everything to grow. Life grows. It wants to move off into new frontier. And yeah. whatever grows the plant grows me, grows you, grows our hair. It's all the same life force. And it wants to expand and go on to the next, the next level, the next thing. Uh, and yeah. we know that because we observe it happening in, in our lived yeah. reality. And that is beautiful. So um, what a wonderful discussion as well. It's, it's nice to go to those places imaginatively because there's very yeah, few people fun. can actually talk, talk to about that. But um, so you you are giving sessions now. I just you you wanted to mention you um you, you're available for sessions with people to if they want to talk with you about anything. Could you tell us a bit what you do in those sessions and? Yeah. So, well, first I'll say formally what I used to do um, was I used to actually serve people five meo DMT and work with people one on one to help them directly experience the non dual state and. I did that for a number of years and then decided that I wanted to share everything that I learned from that, but I didn't want it to be an advertisement for working with me. So I stopped doing direct medicine sessions with people. And then that became the basis for my book in theogenic liberation where I put, okay, this is everything that I learned about how the ego works. What are the energetic structures? What are the energetics of 5-MeO-DMT? How do you move into a non-dual state? How do you not indulge your ego? How do you overcome fear? Where do you find all the traps, right? And so I've really written this, this manual for how to work with not just 5-MeO-DMT, but I say with, that this applies to work with any kind of psychedelics. The, mm -hmm. This is the energetics of how it works. Um, so I made made that information available. And now, also what I do is I offer consultations for people. Because, um, you know, now that many more people are being exposed to 5-MeO-DMT around the world, that, like we've already talked about, people have these experiences, but then they can't relate it to anybody. And sometimes it's really mind-blowing, and they don't know how to integrate it into their own lives. Mm -hmm. So I offer online consultations with people of 30, 60, or 90 minutes, and most of the people who contact me are people who have had some kind of non-dual experience with 5-MeO-DMT, but also people with, you know, ayahuasca or mushrooms or iboga or, you know, even people who haven't had a non-dual experience but, but have had like a really powerful psychedelic experience but want help understanding how the non-dual perspective applies to their experience of demons and aliens and, and all of that. Mm. So it's just basically helping people find clarity. Also helping people, because, you know, 
we've talked about that these processes start like once you open up this energy that things start to shift and change and relationships change and identities change yeah um helping people understand that what they're going through is normal and give them reflection on that so really i work as kind of a coach for people who are either preparing for an experience or have had an experience and they need help integrating it or they just want something to to talk to who can understand where they're coming from and can help them make sense of what they go through. And it, it's important to emphasize, especially with 5-MeO DMT, it blows people away. And like even people who have spent years meditating or whatever, that it's such a profound experience that it can be difficult to integrate. And then also some people, you know, that then they, they're longing after it. Um, they want to escape back. Or then some people have really traumatic experiences. Like if their ego doesn't let go, and they fight with it, it can be deeply traumatic. So there's a lot of room to have a deep personal discussion with someone about what's going on, where they can let go, where they can transform themselves, and where they can express themselves authentically. So that's what I help people do. And I actually just made a new web page for it, so I'll plug that. It's um, non-dual-entheogenic-integration.com. It's all one word, non-dual-entheogenic-integration.com. Yeah. Yeah, I'll put a link in the description. And and are you checking in from time to time with 5-MeO? Are you, do you check in or are you finished with it? Um, so back when I was doing sessions with people, well, let me answer it this way. When I was going through my own transformation and awakening process, 2008 and 2009, I was using 5-MeO-DMT about once a month, drinking lots of ayahuasca, going to the local Santo Daime church and drinking a few different times a month, um, and then also doing work with salvia divinorum and psilocybin oh. mushrooms. Mm. And then after, so I reached, I reached a point where I just really accepted the reality that, okay, and what it came down to is, is I reached the point where I was able to honestly say, okay, I'm God. I accept it. And that's not coming from my ego. I'm not telling you that so that you can say, oh, I worship you, Martin. I'm telling you because it's true. Mm. I am God. You are God. When I really finally accepted that, there wasn't much point for me to take 5-MeO-DMT anymore. But it was after that that I started serving 5-MeO to clients and working one-on-one -on -one with people. And at that point, I found if I took it with them, I could really closely monitor their energetic state and help them through the energy of the experience. So I did that for seven years where I was doing like three to five sessions a week over like seven years. And I was taking 5-MeO-DMT with every person I ever served the medicine to. Then when I stopped that, that was a few years ago where I stopped doing sessions. At that point, I really didn't take any more 5-MeO DMT. Um, and then I, I personally really got into, and this was just purely for my own personal enjoyment and entertainment, I really got into mixing MDMA with 4-ACO DMT with MXE and edible cannabis. I was doing like these cocktails. <laughs> um, just, because, just because it was so beautiful and I just loved it. You know, I mean, just crystalline, fractal, rainbow, exquisite <laughs> just 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 going deep into it and then sometimes i would add some 5meo into that mix <laughs> um 
but it's not something that I really take anymore. And even now that I have this sleep disorder, one of the medications that I'm taking to help with sleep um, can actually interact poorly with tryptamines and can create um, heart arrhythmias or possibly even stop your heart. Mm. So as long as I have this sleep disorder and I'm taking this particular medication, which doesn't, I mean, even with the sleep disorder, I take various different medications and herbs and supplements every night. And it's not like they put me to sleep that I go up and down, up and down, up and down all night. And I wake up feeling like I haven't slept at all. So it, it's a really terrible situation. So the, the medication helps. It doesn't solve the problem, but it makes it so that as long as I'm on that medication, I really shouldn't be taking, I can take like low doses of tryptamines and that's okay. But like at a higher level, I really would be potentially endangering my health that my heart might stop. So yeah. for right now, no, I have not been taking any tryptamines. Fortunately, the medication does not interfere with phenethylamines like mescaline or MDMA. So I can still right. take psychedelics and not have to worry about my health. But at the moment, tryptamines are at least high level tryptamines are kind of off the table for me. Plus I don't really have a need for it. You know, that mm. the, my personal work with five MEO DMT that was done for me, that was in 2008 and 2009. I haven't really taken it for myself since then for the yeah. most part. You know, one, one signpost to deeper revelations of what's really going on here can be the dream world and can be sleep. Uh, it, it points to something odd. You know, if you've never done any psychedelics or you've never done any, any drug whatsoever, the fact that you sleep and dream and that dream feels as real as the real world and it's, it's limitless is a pointer to uh, a, a kind of transcendent reality. Do you think your work with entheogens has affected uh, the, the, your ability to sleep? Do you think it's related or do you think it's non-related? I mean that they seem to be in somewhat related, the dream world and the psychedelic world. Yeah, my, my honest answer has to be, I don't know. Yeah. And I say that because I don't have any personal intuitions about it. Um, also through the sleep disorder, I have been in contact with numerous doctors, um, people who are very familiar with psychedelics, people who are familiar with my own usage, my own history, and, and also with numerous sleep experts and no one knows what's wrong with my sleep or how to fix it or what's caused it. Mm -hmm. and, and honestly, the people who know most about psychedelics and my own personal use don't think it's related. Um, and then there have been some doctors who don't know much about psychedelics. And when they hear that I've taken lots of psychedelics, they say, oh, well, gee, that's probably it. Um, but the honest answer is that nobody knows what I mean, my sleep disorder is non-classifiable. It does not fit any of the known sleep disorders. And so no one has really been able to either pinpoint the root cause or what a solution might be. So my, my intuition is that, I mean, my personal feeling is, like one of the questions people always ask me is like, wow, you did a lot of 5-MeO-DMT. Do you think that caused the sleep disorder? 
my sleep disorder didn't fully manifest until at least two years after I stopped doing sessions with people. And at that point, I wasn't using 5-MeO anymore. Yeah. So my feeling is that if it were related to 5-MeO, it should have shown up earlier than it did. Yeah, yeah. Um, people, people get these disorders, you know, uh, regardless of psychedelics, they get these disorders, right? Yeah, things happen. We, we live in a physical system and things do break down. Yeah. Right? that it, it happens. And honestly, I have had issues with sleep and insomnia ever since I was a small child. So mm -hmm. it actually dates all the way back before I ever tried any psychedelics. Now, what, how really psychedelics might have related to it, might have caused it, or maybe even held it off is another possibility. I don't know. There's mm -hmm. not enough science there for me to say. So I, I can't, I can't give any kind of definitive answer other than to tell you I have a sleep disorder. It really sucks. Nobody knows what to do about it. Um, but I still do enjoy psychedelics um, from time to time uh, because I enjoy them very much. I'm, I'm a fan. I'm, yeah. not, I'm not using them to try and find anything, but it's just I enjoy them. I mean, sure. there's, there's nothing like psychedelics with your eyes closed and listening to music that you love is just the best. It's <laughs> just the best. We can agree on that for sure. Yeah, uh, Martin, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. It really has. And I thank you for your uh, very authentic honesty about lots of personal things in your life and, and your work. Uh, the book, which is available on Amazon, and uh, your website, which I'm going to be putting in a link uh, down below to this video. So I, thanks so much, Martin, for your time. Well, Thank you uh, for the delightful conversation. I've really enjoyed it. I definitely was looking forward to this today. And um, just thank you so much for reaching out and giving me the opportunity to speak that I'm, I'm always happy to do so. And it's been a great conversation. So thank you very much. Thanks, Martin. Thanks.